I'm going to do it on my computer. Okay, so we left off yesterday uh, in the beginning of Perak Bet of, um, of, uh, of Shemot. We read about basically the uh, anti-Semitic legislation of the Paro and the slavery then and so on that, uh, that, he, uh, that he brought about and what the motive behind it was in terms of understanding the, the psychological and political uh, motives that uh, lay behind the anti-Semitic legislation. I think it's important to see that because it's relevant, not just for understanding the story of, uh, of uh, Shemot, it's also just relevant for understanding the history of anti-Semitism, what tends to, uh, what tends to provoke it. Um, so you can try to be aware of it and try to be uh, attentive to that. In any case, we are, um, we're in the beginning of Perik Bet, and this is the story of the birth of the savior, but not the one that most that people were celebrating on Saturday. Um, I, it's always funny when those two, when that parasha falls out on December 25th, because um, it's, you know, there's a, some kind of an irony or some kind of a, some kind of a divine sense of humor going on there. I don't know. Um, the, the two births, very different kinds of birth stories. Um, and the, uh, in the, uh, the mythological one of the Christians versus this one, the, um, you'll notice an interesting thing that the, that their names are not provided to us in the text at this point. Uh, in fact, nobody's even according to the Midrashim, even Pu'an, Shifra are not their real names. Uh, but those were uh, either, um, code names for them or, uh, or, or had some other symbolic significance. The way that the Chazal read it, actually, if you're reading it according, strictly according to the Midrashic interpretation that Shifran Pua are also not names. So we actually haven't heard a single person's name besides the Shvatim yet in this parasha. Um, at the very least, we haven't heard the names of anybody that we recognize yet. So saying a person from the house of Levi married the daughter of Levi is about as vague as you can get. And we know that the names of the parents of Moshe are Amram and Yocheved. So eventually that's going to become clear, but not until next week's parasha. And I would, uh, yeah. Do you think there's any, I don't, I don't even know where, this, where I'm doing this, but do you think there's any relationship between the way that there starts with and what starts in that? I don't know, just because you said that, I thought like the creation story where it starts with uh, uh, Adam and Isha or whatever, and it's very big, and then you've got kind of the naming of the people versus here is yeah. it could be I'm not, it, exactly the reason why the names are hidden at this point is not entirely clear um i think it might become clearer later further on but let, let's let's see let's see if any any idea emerges from uh, as time goes by we know that uh, you know, one one um, even even Miriam's name is not mentioned. It's just Achoto. You know, everybody's is is uh, mentioned in terms of their relationship to uh, the baby, and the only person whose name is actually explicitly said is Moshe. So it's uh, so it it seems to accentuate the name of Moshe, so that you you could say that. Um, and I'm just throwing out a guess. I, I, this is like half-baked ideas on top of one-third-baked idea. I don't know. But it could be that 
the way that we saw in the beginning of the of the book of Shemot that you had the names of the Shvatim and it said, oh, why are they mentioned by name? You know, each one is mentioned by name, Ruven, Shimon, Devi, Yehuda. Why are they mentioned by name? Oh, to show you the special status that they had in the eyes of God. And then you see that another name doesn't really emerge until Moshe Rabbeinu, who now is like the new individual who's going to play a critical role in the, uh, you know, in the unfolding of the divine plan. So it's almost like the Torah doesn't want to give a name until it gives a name of the person who's going to be the next person in that category. And, it, and that that almost like kind of flashes back to the beginning of the parasha, sort of saying that those names were the individuals. And then we talk about the collective and the swarming, you know, numbers of Jews. And then the next individual who stands out as a kochav uh, of the group is Moshe Rabbein. Could, could be something like that. And anyway, in any case, I'm not sure. But vatar yhaisha vatelet ben. So the 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 woman became pregnant and she had a son. Vatero tokitovu. She saw that he was very good. Of course, the question is, what mother sees their child and doesn't think they're very good? Okay, good good question, right? But it's peneu shlosha yoachim. Shlosha yoachim. Yoachim is the old style word for chodashim, right? It's uh, months. So because yoreach uh, is an old is is an, is the word for the moon. So like sometimes even in old English, you'll see the term many moons ago. Um, it's a uh, month and the word month comes from the word moon also. It's just a little bit corrupted. Um, the, the months of the secular calendar that we have don't follow, don't actually follow the moon cycle, but they're made of 30 days because they roughly approximate, you know, the, the lunar cycle. Um, in terms of the length, even if not in terms of the uh, exact breakup of the months. So moons, Yoachim, fine. But what does it mean that she saw he was good? Okay, so Rashi, of course, falls back here on the Midrash. Right, so that's, so, which makes, which doesn't help us in terms of understanding the pshat of what it would signify that she thought he was good, because generally speaking, Anyone, right? He says, That's like a, uh, you know, the, the house filled up with light when he was born. What does that mean? I don't know. He was jaundiced. You know, he, 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 so he's very bright skinned. I don't know. What, 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 is it, what does it mean that it, I don't know, but the Ramban says in the beginning, Right? Like they say in English, a face only a mother could love, you know? Meaning every mother thinks their baby is cute. Most babies are cute, but you know, once in a while you see a baby that is not so cute, but the mom still thinks that they're the most amazing, beautiful baby. So, uh, so and that's, that's human nature. So uh, thankfully most babies are cute and they, you know, evolutionarily that has to be so because otherwise who would want to keep an annoy a creature around that you know exhausts you and eats all of your food and um costs you so much money it would be survival of the fittest would would preclude uh, reproducing so they you know that's why babies are cute um so we keep them and that's true for most of the babies now what is the um what does it mean litov what, what does it mean that he was good right so he says so the way that um, that uh, the Ramban uh, feels that the, says that you know uh, that she saw that there was she felt that there was something special about the child, unique about the child, 
right? And he says, the Chachamim say that, you know, Shinit Malayab Kolabayit Ora, he quotes that also. But um, somehow she saw something particularly special about this child, is what it seems to uh, suggest. Um, exactly what that was. Could it be that physically he seemed to be a, a particularly beautiful child? Probably that would be the, the closest to this, the, the simple meaning um, and might also explain why Bat Paro was so quick to adopt him. Because if he hadn't been like an attractive looking child, she might have been less likely to do that. Realistically, I'm saying. You know, so it could be that it just meant that he seemed like a, a very attractive looking, beautiful baby, uh, you know, remarkably beautiful baby. And that endeared him to his mom and, and pushed her to want to save him. You know, even though the way that she was going to save him was, uh, was uh, you know, a very risky proposition and, 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 and really was not, was far from guaranteed to succeed. But the, uh, but it, it seems like what it means is that she felt that there was something especially beautiful about the baby, especially uh, deserving of, uh, of effort to save. But what is Rashi saying when he says, what, what, what do you think that Midrash is trying to get at? I mean, even the Ramban quotes that Midrash that um, about the house being full, full of, uh, uh, of lights. What do you think that means? Going back to what I was saying, Kliya Tarajir, um, kind of quotes that same, uh, he said, it's kind of going back to that. Ah, oh, so there, there's your creation theme. Maybe, maybe it's kind of, yeah. kind of like that. This is, this is also part of the creation talk. This is a new, new start to the, the story. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. So that would connect it to the idea of light. Yeah. But, hey, but what, like said, this, is, this is the source. In the same way that the light was the source of like the, the future energy that would, that would produce creation, this is going to be the source of what's going to bring I don't know. I would just thought from the young way that they knew that he was special. Right. I think, I think the shot is that he was very, I think, and I think the Ibn Ezra might say this too. You know that the pshat is is uh, that he was a very beautiful child, and I'm sure everybody could see that as the simple pshat. You know, because it's something that a mother could see right away normally. So it has to be something like according to the pshat that has to be. But the idea of the the house being filled with light means what? So you're saying that maybe it goes back to the idea of vayar Elohim et or kitov, and that this is very sheet because you know the story of. Uh, Creation is linked to some extent. You know, how do you see that the, the story of creation is linked to the story of Moshe Rabbeinu? I just, I don't know about the creation story, but the Well, I could think of one connection. For example, like the Torah was given on Shabbat, according to the according to the Chazal, right? The Torah was given on Shabbat, and that's why in Shabbat morning you read Yismach Moshe b'Matnat Chelko Ki Even Neman Karatel and all of that because it actually happened on Shabbat. Matan Torah happened on Shabbat, which is a way of saying that basically that the that the giving of the Torah is a is a completion of the creation. No, like it, it's it's saying that that there was one component of the creation that wasn't um, it wasn't uh, in, in living in harmony with the uh, Chokmat Hashem 
the one remaining component was the human component because of the because human beings didn't have because the rest of the the rest of nature doesn't consciously adhere to laws of nature. The rest of nature adheres to the laws of nature without conscious will, without awareness even. But human beings have consciousness and free choice. So therefore, they the way that they adhere to the will of God is by learning the law of Hashem and following it through exercising choice. So the, so the creation is uh, so the creation is. Um, is uh, com- is not complete until the Torah is given because that means that now it's possible for human beings also to live in harmony with the Dvar Hashem, the way that Bidvar Hashem Shamaim Na'asu same way that the rest of the universe uh, is governed by God's Chokhmah. Now we can be governed by God's Chokhmah because we have the ability to study the Torah and to you know and to adhere to it and and rather than to our own impulses. So if you look at it that way, yeah, I mean, maybe, uh, maybe there's a, a, maybe that's part of the hint here. And by, uh, you know, that she saw that he was good, meaning that he, that the, the idea of the light is that is the illumination of um, like the way the Ralbag interprets the light and the, uh, uh, and the illumination of, um, of, uh, uh, of Kitov is that it means the uh, the abstract ideas that are behind the laws of nature and behind creation that's what that's what the or is of course he doesn't take the or to be like the light of the big bang like many um in modern interpreters want to connect everything in Breshit more to the physical unfolding of the creation the ralbag actually dafkas doesn't say that about the light he says the light is talking about like uh it's talking about the metaphysical wisdom behind the creation that came into existence. And so that would mean that the or is a reference to the Chokhmat Hashem that it eventually is the organizing principle behind everything that you see around you. And the emergence of Moshe Rabbeinu is going to be the source of the uh, light that is the illumination that applies to uh, to uh, the Torah and the mitzvot, ki neu mitzvah v'torah or something like that. Right, like so you, you could you could definitely make that that connection. But see it. I mean, it's just very preliminary. I don't know. I'm just bu- building off what you're mentioning and just trying to see where it goes. If you if you so still the midrash presupposes that his mom and his dad and maybe his sister had a sense that he could be someone momentous, though. Right. Right, there's a, that he was no no lad maul. Um, also, that Miriam had a had a prophecy. Right, there that you know. So there, there are there are in the, the midrashim try to account for this by saying that they had reason to believe there could be a special child coming down the pipeline, and when they saw a very beautiful child, they assumed that he was the one. But it could very well be that also the, um, in other words, the Chazal are trying to explain why they would even have had the thought that this that he would be such a person at such an age, right? Because and and just to mention, like that's exactly the opposite of uh, of Christianity. In other words, we never have a savior that's born and they are special from birth. There's there's no such thing, because a person has to become a Moshe Rabbeinu. You're not born the savior at three months old. There's no such thing as a savior at three months old, right? The, uh, in fact, later on in the parasha, it says, 
ויהי בדרך במלון, ויפגשהו השם, ויבקש המיתו. השם almost kills משה רבינו on the way down to מצרים, because he didn't give a brief מילה to his son. So obviously השם must have had a plan B and a plan C behind משה רבינו as a backup. There's no individual who's indispensable to the, uh, to the divine plan. So, ah, so you'll ask, what about the, uh, everyone asks this, the Radak asks it, what about Yirmiyahu says, that I, that I already chose you, I chose you from uh, while you were still in the Betin, in the, your mother's womb. Ah, so doesn't that show that a person could be uh, chosen as a Navi from birth and they have a, uh, 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 their, their naturally born star, their naturally born uh, Navi? So he says, no, what it means, the Radak says in Sefer Yirmiyahu, that it means that there are certain genetic predispositions and abilities and, and, and natural, uh, um, you know, a person could be born especially smart. It's genetic. They have good DNA. They have good genes. It's not some, it doesn't mean he was born a Navi and he started prophesying when he came out of his mother's womb. You know, that's, that's not the, uh, that, that's not the concept. We recognize that he developed into the person that he was. But he started out with a, a good uh, DNA, a batch of DNA that put him in a position where he would be able to become who he became. That's the idea of, you know, so, so was it that she saw in Moshe Rabbeinu, because they had the idea, like the Chazal basically in the Midrashim sort of um, um, uh, say that they, they had a predisposition to see him as being a special child because they expected a special child to be born. Um, and when they saw this child who seemed to be sp- especially beautiful and, and especially, you know, attractive child, they figured this could be the child who is meant to be the one who will save us. And, and therefore they expect that. But I think the, the house filling with light could have something to do with like what Ariel is saying, that the idea of the house filling with light is that, and, and this is important actually, because um, maybe this is the point. That, um, and you know, come to think of it now that I'm circling back for a second, like maybe this is the whole point that really, uh, really, we think of the story of Yetziat Mitzrayim as a story of the alleviation of the suffering of the Jewish people in the Avdut of Mitzrayim. And that's the, the main focus is the oppression of the, uh, of the uh, Jews at the hands of the Mitzrayim. So most people would naturally just be focused on freedom from the suffering of Mitzrayim. But the idea that the house is full of light means that what the parents of Moshe Rabbeinu perceived as his role wasn't just that he was going to be uh, someone who alleviated suffering because that's not an end in itself, right? Meaning uh, alleviating physical suffering is not the goal. That's not the end game. That's a means to an end, meaning you can't really achieve the goal of having mamlechet koanim v'goy kadosh if you're enslaved to another people. But that's not the, that's a means it's necessary, but not sufficient because you can't, um, because he has to bring the light. In other words, he has to bring illumination and wisdom to the people that they'll be able to live in accordance with the Devar Hashem. Otherwise, uh, just being released from one type of bondage, you'll find your way very quickly into another kind of bondage because human nature is to want to be, um, to have your life directed by some, uh, uh, some sense of purpose so if the, if the sense of purpose is uh, not provided to you by the Egyptian taskmaster, so you'll run to someone else who will be glad to fill in exactly where you should go and what you should do with your life. And, um, and so there, there will be a void left there. So perhaps maybe, um, maybe that's what the Midrash means. I'm not, uh, you know, like I said, 
these are half-baked ideas, but something maybe to run with that the, um, that the, uh, the idea of the Midrash is to say, and of course they were, they were from the house of Levi, which is also not an accident because as the Rambam makes a big deal out of, you know, the Shevet Levi and all the Midrashim too, the Rambam didn't invent it. That Shevet Levi was always the one that was connected the most to the Masoret of the Avot. They never got involved in idolatry, even in Egel Azahav, they never did. They weren't involved in Chet Amaraglim either. The only Chet that ever reached the uh, Leviim was actually the Chet of the, um, of the uh, Korach. The Korach situation was the Leviim. But other than that, Shevet Levi was pretty good, uh, well behaved throughout the, um, throughout the time. And that's why, the, uh, that's why uh, it would make sense that it would be expected. In other words, people of Shevet Levi would understand what a real Goel personality would be that it would be a person who would educate the people towards an understanding of God, not just a person who would be able to uh, get them out of bondage, because that in and of itself always leads to another bondage. As we see from history, uh, every revolution, Freud once pointed out, every revolution against a supposedly tyrannical society quickly replaced that tyrannical society with another tyrannical society um, in most of history. Maybe the United States of America is an exception, but the uh, but in most cases that's what happens, and uh, the reason is because human nature is to uh, is number one to enslave others, and number two to be enslaved. So uh, so Moshe Rabbeinu was, and you know when we that's the reason why in the Kriyat Shema we always read first the Brachot about Yotzer Or Voichoshech, and then we read about Gaal Yisrael. First, you read about Briyat Olam and the giving of the Torah, and then you read Ga'al Yisrael. Why is that? Be- even though cr- chronologically speaking, the giving of the Torah happened after the Geulah of Mitzrayim, right? Correct? So, so why don't we do in the morning, first mentioning Yitziat Mitzrayim, and then mentioning the Avat Olam, Avtanu, giving of the Torah? Why do we do it in the other way? Because the answer is that the Geulah wouldn't work. It's not sustainable without the Torah. What enables the person to have a real redemption from human bondage is that they have an understanding that Hashem is who runs the world. Otherwise, they're just going to run to a different taskmaster, realizing it or not realizing it. Right. So the so the uh, so that's the you know so it could be that that's what the midrash is getting at and ties in the creation idea, ties in the idea of the matan Torah that they were expecting a child. Who, uh, who, and this child struck them as a child who gene- seemed genetically gifted. He won the genetic lottery, let's say, and therefore, uh, and therefore, it seemed like he would be uh, a fitting person to bring that gift to uh, to the Jewish people. Could be. All right. So, um, so what happens now? Uh, we all know the story. Obviously, he's put into the uh, little basket. He's floating along the river. Notice that his, his sister is watching from afar to see what will happen. Again, suggesting, right? Suggesting that they believed that there was a chance. They were hoping, obviously, that somebody would come take this baby up. They were hoping, they, they believed that this was a beautiful child. And they were hoping that some random person might see this beautiful child and save him rather than wanting to cast him into the sea. And they were right. Yeah. I have a question, Rabbi. Uh, the material that she used, the car and everything, why all the, the terse language here, why mention that? Well, 
I don't know, you know, it's sometimes like, uh, like the Ibn Ezra says, sometimes they, it says that because that's what they did. You know, it's, um, it doesn't have a deep, it doesn't necessarily have a deeper meaning, but they, they do say that, uh, you know, it's, it's telling you that, um, that, it, that it was, it was done in such a way that the Zephet was outside, you know, that, that so that he wouldn't be subjected to the unpleasant smell of the tar. She wanted to make it pleasant or this. It could be that it's, you know, that there's a, there's some nuance of the way that in which she did it. But I mean, there's a, there's no question that the Tevav Moshe Rabbeinu is also uh, a remez to the Tevav Noach, that there's a, that being saved from the water because the um, both Moshe Rabbeinu and Noach, Noach and Moshe Rabbeinu have a lot in common. Noach also was in the Teva for 40, uh, you know, 40 days and 40 nights of rain. And then a whole year after that, actually, but 40 days and 40 nights of rain. Moshe Rabbeinu was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights of give, getting the Torah. And then he, and the Mishkan is revealed a year after they uh, exit Mitzrayim, which could be connected to that idea of the year of the, uh, of the Teva. I'm not sure, but there's a definite connection between the two because they're the lawgivers of the Torah. Noach is the first person who receives laws, laws for the for the Gentiles, for the Bnei Noach, and Moshe Rabbeinu reveals laws for uh, for Am Yisrael, right? The laws of Noach are meant to Im, to create order, to remove the chaos from society, um, which is a good thing, but not an end, in, not not the final end game. And Moshe Rabbeinu's laws are meant to bring people closer to Hashem, which is a totally different, um, uh, a totally different objective or higher objective, I should say. It presupposes the objective of there not being chaos, but it's, uh, but it builds on that. So Moshe Rabbeinu is another Teva traveling uh, person. Probably the details of the, um, probably the details of mentioning that it's a Teva, calling it a Teva and so on is to link those two events. The idea of being saved from water in Noach's time and being saved from water in Moshe Rabbeinu's time highlights the fact that they both played a role of um, of salvation and of uh, and of law giving, and, and which really is um, which really, like the Rambam says in uh, the ultimate salvation is the salvation of teaching wisdom to people because uh, you could save a person from physical death, but their death, but their life doesn't really have any meaning, so you haven't really saved them from. Uh, from a uh, an intellectual death or a spiritual death, you only save them from biological death, which is of limited value. So, so the, that's the. Um, and by the way, lahavdil one million havdalot. Uh, I've probably mentioned to this this to you guys before, but it's an inyanadioma of uh, uh, I'm you know of uh, this time of year of the holiday season that um, you should realize that what is the uh, you know, the, um, when, when a Christian asks you, have you been saved? Have you been saved by, by belief in Jesus? I hope you realize what, what they're asking if you've been saved from. You know what the, you know what the, what the salvation is? Did you ever wonder? Jesus has oh, saved us oh. from what? What did he save us from? Right. He saved us from Judaism, basically. That's, that's, that's what they think. Right. So the irony of yeah, the irony of of Christianity and Judea of Jews thinking it's okay to combine Christianity and or Christmas and Hanukkah is that they're exactly the opposite. Hanukkah is about the eternity of Judaism, and Christmas is literally about a guy that was born to exempt everybody from Judaism, and and to make it a, to make it obsolete. 
It's exactly the opposite. And, and the belief that, that the law is what makes you uh, mortal and freedom from the law makes you uh, an eternal being like God, um, which is, you know, that, that's the mythology of, of their religion. So in any case, so the so Miriam is is um, is watching because she's hoping to see if there's any opportunity to intervene, right? So this again shows you a certain um, characteristic of the family, and I think that's the exact same reason why uh, they say that Shifran Pua are also Yocheved and Miriam. In other words, there is a sense of being meticulous and being attentive and seeing seeing things through to the end that they don't let it go there's a to the last minute they're holding on to Moshe and when they finally put him in the Tevat there's supervision to see if there's anything that can be done to uh to save the situation they don't abandon it they don't abandon him or the situation to fate or give up there's no sense of giving up and um and therefore it's a kind of a resistance against the uh against the imposition of tyranny um, from Paro. And here's the irony that Bat Paro, who again, we don't, we're not given her name either. She's just called the daughter of Paro. Everybody is the sister of somebody, the daughter of somebody, the father of somebody, the, the wife of somebody, the husband of somebody, so far, right? Bat Paro comes and she comes to And this is where, uh, you know, where the... Um, uh, right, and 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 her her servant girls are walking by the uh, by the river. So people love this midrash about the uh, you know they love the midrash about the bad uh, paro's arms stretching into uh, uh, stretching out many amot to uh, grab the uh, the basket out of the river. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Did you want to say something? Yeah, I don't want to slow us down. <laughs> I don't want to slow us down, but the ore obviously the water and the yeah. soup, soup would be like banks of the shoreline. It's like it's like the you know, like on a on a river, there's the area by the bank where there's a lot of um like uh vegetation. You know, like there, there's a lot of like reeds and and, and uh, right. other vegetation that grows like right along the riverbank, kind of like in the swamp. It's like where it's almost like going from being a swamp to being a river, that part. So, uh, uh, so that, that's what it's talking about. When it's about Hassan Basu, obviously she didn't necessarily put it in the water, but that you could like Dr. put the basket in the reeds near Bataro, in the only place that anyone could find him and be in a position to save him. Right. Right, so I think so. He wasn't floating down the river, but she didn't also just put him in some random reeds for a random stranger to find him. But the only way he could have had a chance for survival is that someone from the house of Tarot was in a position to find him. Right, or I mean, yeah, it doesn't sound from the text, it doesn't sound from the text that he was floating down the river the way they show in the cartoons. It sounds like she put him by the side of the river where the baby would basically be sitting there. And somebody might yeah. see it. But not just somebody. Right. It could very well be that she knew that Batparo intended to come there at a certain time and was hoping that she would take an interest in this baby, or that she knew people came at that time, Egyptians came at that time and was hoping it. We don't know. But um, she I, I don't think that it was an, a totally irrational type of uh, 
She was hoping to appeal to the sympathies of an individual, right? Right, because then they would just be taken too. So she must have known that Egyptians came there. You're right. I agree. The idea, the thing is that the stories here, what is the whole story of Shem, of really the beginning of Shemot? The whole story of the beginning of Shemot is a state-sponsored anti-Semitic campaign, which is thwarted by and large by individuals who don't go along with the program. So you have Shifran Pu'ah that don't go along with the program. You have um, Moshe Rabbeinu's parents who decide not to just give up their baby to the uh, soldiers of Paro, but to put him in the water and, and, and hope that somebody will see him who will themselves be a type of person who is willing not to follow what everybody else is doing and to, uh, and, and to intervene and take this child because they feel sympathy. What is, the, what is really, if you think about it, have you, whenever you've been in a, in a situation where you have to deal with bureaucracy or you have to deal with you know, any kind of uh, red tape, you always hope that you'll be able to meet someone who instead of just looking at the, uh, what it says on paper, instead of just looking at the law, will look at you as a human being and see your situation and be willing not to follow exactly what the uh, standard procedures are and to make an exception because they empathize or sympathize with you. So the idea is it's one thing for a soldier who's under orders going from house to house to kill, take babies and throw them or whatever. It's another thing a baby is sitting there and some Egyptian woman sees a baby sitting in the water in a, in a, in a basket. It could be that at that moment, she will see that baby as a human and will have empathy for that baby and won't be willing to just give up that baby, but might even see that's a cute baby and take the baby home. No, that, that's the hope. The hope is to, to create a situation where somebody will see this baby as someone, as a human being, not as a, not as a Jew that needs to be thrown in the water. Just as you hear, you know, there were very rare, unfortunately, very rare, few and far between situations where Nazis or Germans or Polish or whoever the people who are trying to kill us in some particular situation in a moment decided to have some empathy with some Jew that they, for whatever reason, they were moved to some sympathy and let them go. You know, you hear those stories. Very rare, very unusual, but they did happen. So they were hoping that that would happen in this case too, and it did. Well, what are the, uh, did you notice what, that Bat Paro is going to bathe by the uh, river? First of all, what's the idea of the Midrash? This is very simple, one, Midrash 101. What is, the, it cannot possibly be the shot of the Pasuk that the arm of Paro, Bat Paro stretched out and reached the Teva to pull it out of the Suf. It cannot possibly be. And, and, and Dan Levy is going to tell us why it can't be. Tell us why that can't be the pshat. What, what, what's the reason? As a Torah reader, you have to know this. This is something a Torah reader will know why it can't be the pshat. Because ama with a dagesh, the word ama without a dagesh means a maidservant. The word ama with a dagesh means the length of the ama of the arm, right? We know that when we read amot of the mishkan, if you say ama without a dagesh on the mem, you're building the mishkan out of lots of female servants instead of out of a certain measurement of ama 
which has a dagesh, so which has a patach under the aleph and a dagesh in the mem, right? So the so we know that the pshat is definitely not that it was an ama, meaning her arm extending, because that's not what the that would be against the dikduk of the word ama. Okay, now what does the midrash mean when it says that? What would you say the midrash means when it says that? Right. It's a way of saying that it was that it was as if her arm stretched out and saved him, meaning to say that it was a divine intervention that it happened, that it wouldn't have happened under ordinary circumstances. It was extraordinary that she caught it just in time. It was extraordinary. It was as if her arm stretched out supernaturally to grab him because it was so unusual that it that he would have been pulled out. They also say another thing about the river. What do they say about why she was going to the river? Do you remember this? This is a famous Midrash. Why was she going to the river? I thought Rashi brought this Midrash, but I don't see it here. I thought he did. You don't know this Midrash about why she was going down? That she was going down to, to convert from to Judaism. You never heard this Midrash before? She was going to the mikveh to, to become Jewish. You never you never heard that? Very popular midrash. She was going down to 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 purify herself bit aviha from the idolatry of her father's house, right? So the um, and they learned it actually. They they derive it also from in Divrei Yamim Bitya Bat Paro is also called Hayyudia, the Jewish woman. So they say, oh, she's uh, because she. Uh, she uh, was, uh, you know, rejected the idolatry of her father's house. It's a famous midrash that comes up from time to time. But what is the what is that concept? What would you say that idea is? Hmm? Why would they connect what Bad Paro is doing to the idea of purifying herself from idolatry? Yeah. 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 What? Yeah, she's she's acting in accordance with principles that are non not materialistic principles. Idolatry reduces everything to the physical. So the so even morality is just a negotiation between different material benefits and losses and uh, what's fair and unfair in the apportionment of different uh, material things. It doesn't have anything. It's, it doesn't have any higher principle. But the fact that she was willing to act in a way contrary to any material interest, just because of a sense of the sanctity of human life to save a baby. That was that's your at elokim, like it said before about the uh, about the mialdot. They didn't meaning fear of God means recognition of a higher standard of morality than what is materially expedient uh, or practically expedient. So it's a type of a departure from idolatry, from the materialism of her father's house. To be able to 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 uh, function according to a sense of right and wrong that was higher than uh, than the material, and and that's what she did. So it's a it's a it's another example of a person departing from what you expect of them in the context. First, you had the mialadot, 
Then you had the parents of Moshe. Now you have Bat Paro going and deciding to adopt this baby. Okay, all of them are departing from what we would normally expect people under the circumstances to do, and they're doing it based on a sense of purpose or principle that is higher than the human principle. And that's really what the whole Yitzhak Mitzrayim saga is about. It's about human government or human society that is, a, is based upon uh, humanly established senses of norms and ideas of what is right and wrong, where, where Adam is the kovea of tovera versus, a, uh, uh, versus operating according to a tovera that is objective and that is divinely, as a divine source. When in a sense, and I think that Ariel is saying, like that's going back to the initial story of Bereshit, basically. But maybe a little bit later in the story where we talk about Adam and Chava, whether they're going to choose what is good in their eyes or they're going to choose what is good in the eyes of God. Right, and that's, and so you have individuals who are inspired with um, a sense of purpose that pulls them away from the conventional. And, um, and then so the so we then find that uh, that she felt pity for the child because she sees this baby crying in the basket, you know. This is a moment of truth. Why? She feels pity at that moment. And she feels a little bit of empathy for that baby at the moment. And she's thinking, she knows that it's a Jewish baby because why else would there be a baby floating around? Even the Midrash says it's because she checked and so I had a brief milah, but I don't think you have to go. I don't think she was trying to change the baby's diaper, right? It's a, that's according to the pshat, it was just because she figured from the context, why else would there be a baby floating in a basket on a river unattended? So she decided this and correctly, this must be a Jewish baby. And that is a moment of truth because it could have gone either way at that moment, right? She could have said, well, but there's nothing I can really do. So uh, sorry, you know, I, I feel bad for this baby. Like when you walk by a homeless guy um, and you see him and you say, oh, I feel very bad for this homeless guy. He's a poor guy. He's out here in the cold and, you know, he has no food and he's this. Uh, here's, here's a dollar and you, you keep going. You know, you don't really... Save, save him from the situation, kind of leave him there. She could have done the same, said, oh, you know, poor baby, and then just gone back to her business and gone back to the palace and said, you know, what can I do for this kid? So what happened at that moment? Well, I think the sequence that the, that the text uses to tell us about it is interesting. The fact that she first had and then she says, you know, that I mean, that you would have thought that if she had had pity on it, that she would try and rationalize and say, oh, this isn't actually a Jewish baby, this is actually an Egyptian baby, I'm gonna save him. Like, yeah. and make of that story because she had pity. The fact that she, right. she wasn't back to reality, despite the fact that she's fighting her, her father's direct orders and acknowledging that, maybe that's why you guys are in the act. Yeah, it's, it's almost, I think it's, it's sort of like, it's, it, it's, it's expressing the dilemma, right? Because her emotional side is, it's a it's a baby and you know poor baby her 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 egyptian side is saying well, yeah you know I, I'm, you know this is a problematic baby it's a it's a situation where she has a, a she, the conflict in her is coming out 
because her human side of empathy for a child, when you see an individual baby, right? What are the, what are the worst of the atrocities of the Holocaust, okay? If you can push uh, hundreds of people into a thing and, and kill all of them at once, it's kind of impersonal. But when you hear that the Nazi took a baby and shot a baby, it's a lot more, you say that, that guy was a sicko, because how do you do that? You know, it's actually easier to just drop a bomb on a million people than to take a uh, baby and shoot it. How, how do you do that? So when we talk about a depraved person, a depraved person is somebody who had hurt a baby. So she has a sense of sympathy for the baby, which is a natural sense of compassion, but it's tempered by, hey, wait a second, I'm not really supposed to be doing this. And then what happens at that very moment? Miriam comes in and says, Oh, could I, would, I see that you're showing interest in that baby. But obviously, there's a little bit of a dilemma for Batparo at that moment. Should I call a Hebrew midwife who will nurse the baby for you? See, so that. Now the sequence makes even more sense. In other words, what Miriam did in that moment was she took it, she saw maybe some hesitation in Batparo in the moment and went in to resolve the tension in favor of keeping the baby by, by directing her towards a certain action. It's like when it's a like a good salesperson, you know, a good salesperson who sees some interest, you know, the, the, the person not exactly sure. Oh, well, let's go for a test drive. Oh, okay. So here's the paper sign in. Here's, here's the plan. You know, they try to move you to the action. They move you to the action of making the acquisition rather than dwelling too much on the choice, whether you really want it or not. Because if you think too much, then a lot of times you're going to come out with, this is not really worth the, uh, uh, the investment because at the end of the day, bringing this baby into my life is really going to be complicated. So no, no problem. Miriam says, we have a special plan. We will take the baby off of your hands for a couple of uh, years to nurse the baby from afar. You could come visit him as, a, as you like. And then, you know, whenever you're ready, you take the baby. Okay. It's, a, it's, like, a payment, it's like a layaway plan on a baby. Um, so the, uh, so it, it, she comes in at that moment. Why, why did she mention that? She, let me offer you someone to nurse the baby. What, what made her think that? Because she saw the daughter of Paro looking at this baby and thinking, can I handle this? Do I, you know, how should I respond? How should I respond to finding this baby? Should I go with my heartstrings feeling, or should I go with me? Right. Which one should I, which one should I go with? But and so, so to resolve the tension, Miriam, who happened to be waiting to see if there was an opportunity to save the day, comes in at that moment, swoops in and uh, directs her towards a course of action that at least makes it easier for her, makes it harder for her to say, no, let's just throw the baby in the water because, you know, why? You, I, I will take care of the baby for you. You have a nanny, basically. You come get the baby when you want. You'll, you know, don't worry about it. You know, pay later. But, you know, it, it's sort of a, it's sort of a, a payment plan on getting the baby. So the, um, so you can see how Miriam's involvement was so critical because it wasn't that they necessarily thought that uh, whoever would see this baby was going to take this baby straight away. It was that maybe if somebody sees the baby and they hesitate and they're thinking about what to do because now they're faced, 
not with a an impersonal legal situation of going from door to door taking babies, but an actual baby sitting there crying in a little basket. Maybe the person who encounters the baby will be someone who will be willing to look at them from the human side and not from not as an Egyptian under orders from the paro, but as a human being with a sense of the sanctity of life and that, you know, and and uh, and some empathy. And maybe that's not enough because there were many people, let's say, for instance, during the Holocaust, who were righteous Gentiles who sympathized with the Jews and they didn't necessarily want wouldn't necessarily kill them. They might have given them a small amount of help, but they didn't want to get too involved. And then there were certain people who are really exceptional, who actually like hid Jews at their own peril for years putting themselves in danger. There are many stories like that. Not enough stories, obviously, but many stories more than you would think stories like that. And so the, there are very few people like that. But to find someone who might be willing in that moment of truth to say, okay, I'll take responsibility for the baby since you're going to take the baby and nurse them. And so that makes it a little easier for them to make the morally correct decision. And that is because you don't have to go home and be like, but I don't have any diapers at home and I don't have any bottles and I don't have any this and I don't have that. What am I going to do when I show up with the baby at home? Right? This makes it easier for the moral decision to be made in the right direction. And that's what Miriam facilitates. And of course, they bring uh, the mother of the baby. She's never introduced to, Mir- to Batpo as the mother of the baby. But that's who Miriam brings, of course, the baby's own mother. Okay. Okay. She even gets money out of it. So the first person who has a name in the story is Moshe Rabin, right? I, I pulled him out of the water. He's named after the fact that he was pulled out of the water. Yes. Uh, the seemingly ambiguous pronoun in the last uh, professional Moshe, so obviously this whole dialogue happened Right. Say, it's fresh to say, but I'm like, uh, you know, my issue. Maybe this is your saying this. Your saying this. Figuratively, his destiny was to be thrown in the water, but through my actions, I kind of drew him out of the water and gave him life. Or, oh, is there, was there another possibility? baby that I just raised and weaned, uh, she, she names him Moshe, I drew him out of a certain death. Right. You're saying who named him really? Because it seems from the text that the person who named him was uh, was Bat Paro, no? You're saying that the per- you think the person who named him was Yochebet? I'm saying, can we say that? I hadn't thought of that, but um, the only reason, wow. the, only, the only factor that leans in the direction of saying that it was Bat Paro is the fact that this, the last her or she mentioned in the Pasuk before that is, is Bat Paro. You're right that you could hypothetically attribute it to Yochevet. There's a lot of discussion about this, meaning is it that Bat Paro named him a name 
that was an Egyptian name that corresponds in Hebrew to the name Moshe. That's one way to interpret it. Another way to interpret it, I believe the Ramban says, but I don't have the complete Ramban. I have this like mini Chumash, doesn't have the whole Ramban. I have the whole Ramban in another uh, book out there. Um, that the, uh, that, um, that the that it could be that she asked them how would you say this name in Hebrew, and they and they translated for her and she gave him a Hebrew name. Meaning it it's it could be that this was his it, he had a Hebrew name and an, an Egyptian name, or it could be that he had one name and that but for oh in order to be like respectful of his origin, asked them how would you name a baby. Uh, in Hebrew, and so they gave him a name. You know, when he they gave a, they gave him a Hebrew name. I think the Ramban says that. I don't have that Ramban is not here in this little Chumash, but I think he says that. I, you could check. I, I think he, I think he says something like that. But the um, but the uh, the point is that he's named after the fact that he was saved. Think of what he was. He was named af, out of the after the fact that he was saved in defiance of the law. He, he, he was named after the fact that an individual acted against the laws of Paro to save him. And so his identity actually is uh, imprinted with that as a person who acts in defiance of convention uh, in the name of God and eventually directly in defiance of Paro. Just like Bat Paro initially saved him by going against her own father and the laws of her own country uh, in, uh, in, in extracting him from the water. Yeah. I know we don't get into the content like, in discussion, but do we, have a, do we have a sense of to what extent Paro knows where the baby is coming from, the baby, and how much he didn't know, either at this point or later on? I guess it comes up later with like, I, I will tell you this. It seems abundantly clear, at least to me, that everybody knew Moshe was Jewish. Because number one, when he goes to see the people enslaved, it says, he, he went out to his brothers, Vayar Besivlotam. Right, he knew. He also knows his family. Because later on, when Hashem says, oh, you're going to go see Aaron, your brother, he doesn't say, well, who's that? You know, I, I don't have any brother. I don't have any. He, he, he know, he, what? For sure. I think everybody knew. I think everybody knew. I, I, when Moshe, it's clear that Paro knows also who Aaron is. He knows who everybody in the, in the situation is. The, the irony, that's why the Midrash talks about, you know, Paro being ambivalent about having Moshe in the palace. And so he puts the coal in front of him and the crown in front of him. You know this Midrash, very famous Midrash. And then, and then the, and, and Moshe was about to take the crown and the Malach pushed his hand to take the coal. And that's how he got, uh, he got a, a speech impediment, right? That's what it means. So what that Midrash is trying to show you, first of all, what it shows you is that, that Paro was ambivalent about the idea of having Moshe in the palace to begin with, but somehow we have blind spots and sometimes we allow things that really our better judgment would, 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 would exclude. So Paro did it, even though it didn't really make sense. 
and he re, and he he um, he comforted himself by saying, "What is the midrash really saying?" That that you know you don't have to necessarily take it literally that there was a crown and a coal and he took the coal. That you don't have to take that literally. The the idea is why did Paro not feel Moshe was a threat because he didn't seem like anything to be worried about. In other words, the idea that he had a speech impediment. In other words, ah, he's not anybody. What what is this kid that can barely speak? He's going to be a threat to the crown. I don't have anything to worry about. If it were some Jewish kid who seemed like really he was going to be a uh, a competitor, maybe I'd be worried. But this kid, ah, he's nothing. Right? So he didn't feel, he rationalized to himself that Moshe was nothing to be worried about and therefore allowed him to grow up in the palace independent and uh, and uh, until he crossed him. Because, you know, as as soon as Moshe kills the Egyptian, you know, it's not like uh, Paro hesitates to say, I'm going to kill you. See, if if he thought that Moshe was an Egyptian too, and was legitimately part of the royal family and adopted part of the royal family, then if he killed an Egyptian, Paro would have said, okay, you killed an Egyptian, you're a prince, whatever. It's not like in Egypt, you are not allowed to kill whoever you want if you're part of the royal family. It's not like there's actual laws. You know, If you're part of the royal family, you do whatever you want, right? So, he, But the fact that he was a Jew and he was killing an Egyptian, was disciplining a Jew, ah, now you're showing your true colors that you're uh, who you really are. He knew that he was a Jew, but he rationalized that he would never be a threat to him. That's what those Midrashim are trying to show. And they're saying that he went for the jewels because, you know, they're shiny and sparkly. Any kid would go for the shiny, sparkly toy as opposed to a coal, right? But it happened to be fortuitously that he touched the coals and he burned his mouth, which is a way of saying that certain things indicated to Paro allowed Paro to comfort himself not to have to worry that Moshe would be a threat being in the palace. Um, despite the fact that all that any outside rational person would probably say, you're enslaving this person's entire nation. They are growing up as a prince inside your palace. Aren't you concerned that at some point they might throw off your uh, your authority and rebel against you for the sake of their people? No, he's not the type of guy to do that. You know, so, it's, so I don't have to worry about that. The fact that the says that he was actually heading towards the goal Right. It means that it means that he that whole test that he did obviously didn't really make any sense because of course a child is going to go grab the jewels anyway. Right. It, it, why would a kid go grab coals instead of shiny, uh, colorful thing? Going to grab shiny, colorful thing. But it's saying that Hashem created and it, you know allowed for Paro to uh, to uh, believe that Moshe was not a threat. Meaning he could, even though there were manifest signs that Moshe might've been a threat, he, he allowed Paro to delude himself into thinking Moshe wouldn't be a threat. So the, so in, if that's the, if that's the way you understand the Midrashim, but I'm saying in, in terms of the Pshat, everyone knew that he was Jewish, including himself. And I don't think that was ever in doubt. The only question was, is it a bad, you know, tactical choice to have a Jewish boy growing up in the palace of Paro under the circumstances? Um, and, and we know how that uh, turned out. So the, um, so if we look ahead, okay. Vayar ish 
Notice it says twice, Echav. Vayetze el Echav. Vayar besivlotach. Vayar ish mitzrim make ish ivrim echav. Vayifen ko vachol vayar ki en ish. Vayach et hamitzri vayit meneo vachol. He looked everywhere. He saw there was nobody looking. So he struck the Egyptian and he buried him in the sand. Now, obviously, this is in direct contra contravention to the law and what's expected of him as an Egyptian, let alone as a member of the Pharaoh's household to do such a thing. Because the, the, the taskmaster has every right to beat the Jew to death as far as they're concerned. They, wouldn't care, they couldn't care less. So Moshe first looks around to make sure nobody's looking and then kills the Egyptian, covers his body with sand. Now, what would you say about that action? What is it? It fits perfectly into the pattern of Shemot so far, of people acting. In, he is being just like his mom and just like his sister and just like the Mialdot that according to the Chazal are also his mom and his sister. He's being a person who sees an injustice being perpetrated. He doesn't sit around saying, yeah, but it's against the law and I'm not really supposed to do that. And, nope, he acts immediately um, to save the Jew from the Egyptian. Now, what would you expect? What would you expect the Jews to feel when they see that they have an advocate in Pharaoh's house? Sounds pretty good. Sounds pretty hopeful, right? We have someone on the inside. Maybe we can talk to him. Maybe he can help us have a better life. Well, that doesn't go that way. He says to one Jew, why are you smacking your friend? Why are you hitting your friend? Who made you a prince and a judge of us? You think you're going to kill me like you killed the Egyptian? The Rasha is the guy who was the aggressor. I guess one guy was punching, beating the other guy down really hard. He's called the Rasha, right? He acts very differently. He saw the exact same thing before he killed one. He sees the same two things happening again. Another one now. You see that he considers himself like a Well, he didn't. You mean why didn't he kill the Jew? I think shot wise and shot wise, I think the answer is that they didn't look like they were killing each other. They were just beating each other up. And he's like, why are you hitting each other? He just says to him, why, why, why are you, why are you punching him? Like cut it out. But he's just disciplining them. And, uh, and they say, Oh, are you going to kill us? Like you're going to kill me? Like you killed the Egyptian. Now, wait a second. Moshe Rabbeinu was very careful in making sure Vayarki en Ish when he killed the Egyptian, wasn't he? He made sure that nobody saw. He looked everywhere. There were no security cameras. How did these people know that he killed the Egyptian? Right. The only way that's possible is that the person who he saved told people about it, right? Isn't that what it is? That's the only possibility that the person that he saved went and told everybody what he did, even though he must have realized that would put Moshe Rabbeinu in a really bad position. That could potentially put Moshe Rabbeinu in terrible danger. Hasn't every, anybody ever helped you out in a way and said, don't tell anybody about this? 
you know, like I'm helping you, but let's keep this between you and me because I'll get in a lot of trouble. Happens that, right? Sometimes people do you a favor. You got to imagine Moshe said to the guy, I hope you're all right. Keep this between us. I hid the guy's body. I made sure nobody was watching. Don't tell anybody because I could be, uh, I could be killed for killing the Egyptian. So please don't tell anybody. And yet the guy goes and he does it. And so what does Moshe say? The matter is known. Okay? Meaning, what I did against the Egyptian is known, but it's more than that. What a Chazal say? Something very unpleasant that Rashi quotes here and the Ralbag quotes it, and some people don't like it, but it's this is what the Chazal say. Rashi says it right here. No now I understand what was bothering me. Why were the Jewish people subjected to such terrible enslavement? Now I see they deserve it. Meaning, he said, these people don't want to be saved. These people are, are, are not, don't have any hakaratatov. You go and you try to help them. And what do they do? Instead of appreciating that I'm trying to help them, they want to, they they basically reported him to Paro. That's how it says Paro heard about it. How would he hear about it? Only from the Jews. Right? He was, he, he was running his mouth too much. Like, you know, they wanted him to keep quiet. And so they went to Paro and they reported him to Paro. Who does that to someone who's trying to save you? Okay, so you see his advocacy for justice against the Egyptians is not appreciated by the beneficiaries of it. And therefore he says, according to Chazal, that means, according to Rashi and the Ralbag and others, what that means is now I understand why these people are in this situation. Because these people don't appreciate what you do for them. They're rotten people. That's what Moshe is saying. I'm not saying it. Right, so that's the that's what the midrash is saying that he's saying. But the idea, so he runs away, and later on, by the way, when Hashem asks Moshe to come save the Jews, he says, "Who am I that I should go to Paro and save the Jews from Mitzrayim?" And what what does Rashi say? "Who am I to go to Paro?" Meaning, I'm nobody. Why should I save the Jewish people from Mitzrayim? What zechut do they have? Last time I saw them, it was not very pleasant. According to the Chazal, he was also saying, what do they deserve to be saved? So Moshe has a very bad experience with his own people. He comes to be their savior. He comes to be their advocate. He's trying to fight for them. And they say, we don't want you. Get out of here. We're going to tell on you. They even put his his life at risk for saving them. Okay, so that Moshe runs away. And you would think that Moshe Rabbeinu would learn a lesson. Don't get involved in disputes that you have no connection to. Just live your life and do your own thing. Stay in the palace. Or if you're not in the palace, now you're on the run. Keep quiet. Don't get yourself in trouble. Don't get in bar fights. Don't, you know, don't get in disputes. What does he do? He comes to a be'er, right? So we know Paro wanted to kill Moshe. So he runs to Midian and he sits by the well. Sitting by the well is usually in Tanakh a setting for romance. But um, in this case, it doesn't exactly, it, it works out that way, but only a little bit later. What happens? 
ולכהן מדיין שבע בנות. Seven girls come to the well. ותבונה ותדלנה ותמלאנה את הרעתים. They filled up the troughs of water for their sheep. להשקות צאן אביהן. ויבוא הרועים ויגרשו. But then the bullies, the male shepherds from the neighborhood who were bullies, chased them away to take their water. Vayakom Moshe Vayoshian. Moshe gets up and he drives the, those guys away. Vayash Ketzonam. And he even gives water to the sheep of the daughters of the Kohen Midian, who is Yitro. So Moshe Abravenu, so to speak, hasn't learned his lesson. He sees injustice. He has to react. He's not able to sit back and say, you know what? It's not my problem. That's what New Yorkers are really good at. It's not my problem. Right? We, we, that, that's something that if, if we see everything going wrong on us on a Manhattan street, we try to intervene, we'll end up with uh, uh, two black eyes and a couple of broken ribs and, uh, and, some, uh, and maybe with a couple of our kneecaps missing. You know, we, we, we try to stay out of trouble. Right? We, we, don't, we just look ahead at wherever we're going and we try not to get involved. Most of the time, that's like how, uh, how we, we behave. So Moshe Rabbeinu is the opposite. He sees something going wrong. He gets up and he, uh, he advocates. He, he intervenes. And, um, and what happens this time? So, you'll, so the daughters of Yitro, they go home. Who probably was their grandfather, not their father. So fine. You guys usually are much later, either because every single day they were getting bullied at the uh, troughs or because Normally, uh, the men went first and they came and they were angry that the girls got there first and whatever. Normally, they took longer to get home. He said, how did you get home so quick? Oh, they said, It sounds like it was happening on a daily basis. They were getting bullied by these uh, shepherds because they said, oh, today a guy saved us from the shepherds. Like every single day, you're sending your daughters in a place where they're getting accosted by these aggressive uh, shepherds. Okay, so um, he says, so, and vigam dalodalalanu, he also drew water for us, vayashketatzon, and he watered the sheep, meaning he gave drink to the sheep. What is that always? That's always a romantic moment. Rivka gives water to the camels of Eliezer. She becomes a bride of Yitzchak. And of course, Yaakov opens up the, uh, moves the rock and gives water to Rachel's sheep. And there, there's romance there. It's always a romance with the water and watering of the sheep. But the point is that Moshe Rabbeinu intervened. Now, what is Yitro going to say? If Yitro is a typical Jew of the book of Shemot, of the beginning of Shemot, he would say, who does this guy think he is that he's getting involved in our problem? Tell him to stay in Egypt and mind his own business. Why is he coming here and getting involved in our, our disputes? He should probably go and uh, fix his own country and not be in, here in Midian. He doesn't belong here or something like that, right? But that's not what he says. Where is this guy that saved you? What, you, you? A guy saves you and he gives water to your sheep and you don't even invite him over for dinner. You don't do anything to uh, show Hakaratatov. How could you leave this guy? Bring him in for dinner. And then, of course, So he has a first son, Gershom. What's the idea? Moshe Rabbeinu's passion for justice, when he exhibited it in Egypt, he, it was unwelcome. The Jews perceived it as unwelcome. The Jews perceived it as 
uh, uh, getting themselves uh, unwanted attention, stirring up the pot, giving them, you know, causing them trouble. Be quiet the same way that, you know, some black people in, uh, uh, and now we call them African-American, but, you know, back then they just called themselves black people. They, uh, they, they were very upset when, uh, with a lot of the civil rights movement, some, you know, they were like, listen, you're, you be quiet, you know, uh, don't, don't cause trouble. You're making it worse. You're making more violent crimes against, uh, against African-Americans and more laws against us and more hatred against us. J just be quiet. Just let it go. We'll be quiet. Eventually things will get better. Don't say anything. Don't start. You know, that, that was the attitude of a lot of people during the civil rights time. And so the, the same is true. And, and by the way, that was the attitude of a lot of American Jews during the Holocaust. I hate to say it. When people wanted to speak out and protest and pressure the government to do something about what was going on during the Holocaust, a lot of Jews said, don't say anything. Jews don't, should not be complaining. We shouldn't be pressuring the government. We don't want that attention on us. We don't want to be you know, a spectacle. We don't want to make a scene. Just let it go. Everything will be okay. A lot of rabbis got, there are stories of rabbis getting fired because they spoke on you know, the high holidays from their, in their shuls about what was going on in the Holocaust. And people thought it was politically inappropriate to do that. Right. So it's not an uncommon feeling. Don't stir up the pot. But Yitro is a totally different kind of a personality. He sees somebody who unsolicited with no reason to expect reward, no personal interest, no agenda, nothing, doesn't follow them home expecting a tip or anything, just saw an injustice being perpetrated and intervened to correct it and help them out, did a chesed for them, and then just left it be. That was it. He just wanted justice to be done and to be satisfied that injustice was prevented from happening, and then, then he was good. He's like, this is, a, this is a great person. This is a person I want to I get to know this person. This is a person that I want to come over to my house. Totally different response to the um, vigilante nature of Moshe Rabbeinu, you could say. So if we're looking at vigilantes within Mitzrayim, then we look at Moshe Rabbeinu's attempts at being a vigilante within Mitzrayim that fails and he gets driven out. Now we see finally find somebody who appreciates him. And that person not only appreciates him, but wants him to marry his daughter, which is the ultimate form of appreciation because it means you want him to be part of your family. You know, and, 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 and Moshe Rabbeinu settles there for a long time and he's very happy there. And he has very little interest ever in going back to Egypt again. Because he sees this is a person who really appreciates what I'm about. How do you know that Yitro is a person who loves justice? How do you know that Yitro is a person for whom justice was the ultimate uh, uh, concern? Because when Yitro comes to Moshe Rabbeinu in Parashat Yitro, he says, Now I know that Hashem is greater than all other gods or all other purported gods. Because I see that the Egyptians were unjust to the Jews and they suffered a fate that was commensurate with what they did. Unculus translates, he, the paro drowned them with water. He was drowned with water, right? Meaning that it was it was pure justice. Not like we call here protectia, right? There was no favoritism involved in the... Um, there was no favorites. Most gods of the ancient world were local gods. The god of Moab doesn't care if the people of Moab are good or bad. He's just the god of Moab. 
The God of Ammon doesn't care if the people are good or bad. He's always for Ammon. That's it. He's not going to side with Mitzrayim, not going to side with Moab. He's the God of his own people. There was a sense of tribal gods. As long as the tribe gave the God whatever sacrifices he wanted, they could count on his support, whether their cause was just or not. Didn't matter. Yitro, that's why it says in the Midrash, Yitro tried every single kind of Avodah in the world, and he said they're all nonsense. He couldn't tolerate any of it. He's like, this, none of this could be possibly be real. Because there's no principle. There's no chuchmat to it. It's just different. It's just politics. The gods are politicians. There's no, uh, there's no sense of any, uh, of any real truth in this religion, the religion of idolatry. And therefore, he tried every religion and he rejected it. He's a lover of justice. So when he saw that Hashem didn't favor the Jews against the Egyptians because of some tribal commitment. He favored the Jews against the Egyptians because the Jews were being persecuted and the Egyptians were being unjust and they were the persecutors. He said, that is a true God. That is a God that is just. And what's the ultimate proof? It then says that Yitro brought Olaus Vachim. What does it say? What does it say, Dan, to our reader? When, when it says, when it talks about Yitro in the, uh, when he comes to visit Moshe Rabbeinu after they have the whole discussion, Moshe explains everything that Hashem had done for them in the, uh, in the Midbar and so on and so forth. And then it says what? Something very unusual. At, in, in the, at the end of the first Aliyah Yitro, what did it say? After he says, Hashem is greater than all the gods, Vayikach Yitro choten Moshe Lelohim. He brought burnt offerings and shlamim to Elohim. Why does it use the name Elohim? You want to know something interesting? There is no place in the entire Torah that a korban is ever brought to Hashem with the name Elohim. Not ever. The Ramban actually says, you will notice, that in Sefer Vayikra, the word Elohim doesn't appear, except Elohim Achirim. You know, the word with korbanot, it is always to Yud Kevavke, always Hashem, never Elohim. So why then does he throw? And it's interesting because the Rambam, when he mentions that, doesn't mention this one exception to the rule. Um, why does it mention Elohim? Well, the theme of Elohim, of course, is Midat Adin, it's justice. First, the justice in, in Mitzrayim. Then when, when Yitro talks to Moshe about organizing the community in, an, in a reasoned and practical way. And then at, at Har Sinai, the giving of the Torah. But the idea of justice and order, that was what attracted Yitro to the God of, uh, of the Torah, to Hashem, to the God of Israel, that he saw that Hashem was a just God. So you see that Yitro is a consistent personality. Even from his first encounter with Moshe, what draws him to Moshe is Moshe's love of justice. What draws draws him ultimately to Hashem is that Hashem is a God of justice. And, uh, and whereas the Jews didn't have an interest in the principle of justice, they just wanted to minimize their suffering. And if that meant turning in somebody who actually tried to help them, they were happy to do it. If it meant that maybe they'd be rewarded with a few extra uh, pieces of matzah for a uh, snack because they turned in uh, Moshe Rabbeinu for causing trouble. They, they weren't interested in, in justice and they didn't appreciate Moshe's attempt to uh, fight for justice. And that's, and that's the beginning, really, of, uh, of the story of Moshe. So I, I think we, we went far enough. I mean, I think we'll be able to, to get to the end. I, we went a little longer, sorry. But I wanted to get to the end of it. That's good. That's a quick question, sorry. Why is it in, in past yeah, tense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which part? 
because he's giving you the eye right now. You right. would think he's an Egyptian and he's talking about he's a Gary and Yan, that but it's in the past. Right now he's speaking from the Yan. So where where is he referring to Egypt that he actually carries from the because he's a Canaanite or like I, 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 I always interpreted it, I could be wrong, but I always interpreted it to mean that, no, he identifies with Egypt as his birthplace, but he's saying, I've been here in Midian, which is a strange land. I've been here, meaning like, not that I have been here, I'm not here. Huh? Well, I say, yeah, because he was originally just wandering around until he met Yitro, I think. Meaning he felt he was a stranger until he actually joined the family of Yitro and then he felt that he belonged. To uh, to the family of Yitro. Okay, so we'll see you guys. But what time are we going to continue? In like forty-five minutes? You want to? Ten o'clock. Is that enough time? Ten fifteen. It's up to you. Because we went a little late. Okay. So Okay. All right. I'll see you then. Bye bye.